While the kids are making their way out, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 29 is what we'll read. We're actually not going to work through the entire chapter. And let me say, because if I don't mention it now, there's a good chance I may forget by the time we get to the end. With the um, Genesis 19, we're going to be looking at this juxtaposition of God's justice and God's compassion. And... We're not wanting to shortchange either one of those qualities and attributes and actions that God has given. Um, Because of the the weightiness of some of those issues, and because this is something that uh, the elders have been discussing for a little while, we're actually going to change things up a little bit. At the conclusion of the service today, I'm actually going to remain in the sanctuary. Uh, Alan Adams, one of our elders, will actually go to the door. He'll shake hands and send you off with a, with a nice welcome and, uh, and smile on his face until you return, remember, this evening at 6 o'clock. And then uh, I'm going to stay and make myself available just down here somewhere near the front on the, on the Oregon side. If anyone has any kind of questions or anything that they want to talk about uh, pertaining to anything in the, in the message today or the Christian life in general, uh, we hope that this will afford a little bit more opportunity for conversation without the, the pressure of a, uh, a line backing up uh, behind you that sometimes um, isn't very conducive to some, uh, some good talk and some free exchange. So anyway, Alan will be at the, at the back door. I'll be down front here. Um, don't feel like you have to come up, right? I, I won't feel awkward or anything if no one comes, but I will be there if someone wants to come. Okay? All right. Genesis chapter 19. God is just and compassionate. Follow along with me as I read. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we'll spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you, uh, have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. 
and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I can't escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small, that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also. Not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there is no one like you who is perfectly just and perfectly compassionate and remains so eternally. Your justice never is diminished by your compassion, and your compassion is never diminished by your justice. You are a wonder and a mystery to us. Help us, Father, by the revelation of your word to come to see you more clearly, even if not perfectly. We pray this because of the Spirit who resides within us, because of the work of Christ, our Savior. Amen. God is just and compassionate. Remember that last week when we were looking at the second half of Genesis 18, that there was, um, in the outset of the interaction between God and Abraham, God asked the question sort of in his own mind, shall I reveal to Abraham what it is that I'm about to do? Because Abraham will become a great nation because he will teach his children and his descendants to observe justice and righteousness. And what we, what we, the connection that we tried to make, at least in part, was that one of the reasons that God told Abraham ahead of time what he was preparing to do with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns was so that Abraham could gain greater insight into the nature of God, and in gaining insight into the nature of God, would then also know, according to God's will and God's ways, what that meant for living life before Him. In other words, if God reveals to Abraham in chapter 18 that He is just, that He does what is right when He executes judgment, that he values and prioritizes righteousness in his creation, not only will Abraham know that about God, not only will he see God demonstrating that aspect of his nature, but Abraham will know that it is crucial for him and for his descendants to live and pursue lives of righteousness and justice even in the way that they interact with each other and with the nations around them because the God that has called them is just and righteous. So when we come to Genesis chapter 19 then, Genesis 19 is the outworking essentially of this conversation that took place at the end of chapter 18. God gives Abraham a a foreshadowing of what will take place and now in chapter 19 we're reading 
about the fulfillment of what God has revealed to Abraham. So I want to start Genesis 19 by reminding us of the fact that this passage, although it is one of the most attention-grabbing, arresting passages in the Old Testament, this passage, Genesis 19, and the destruction of Sodom and the surrounding cities, this is not given to us so that we will have something to gawk at. We have Genesis 19 so that we will grow in our knowledge of God and in living lives that please Him. God does not give us any passages of Scripture, no matter how profane or how immoral the events or the characters may seem to be, He does not give us those things just because God likes to shock us every now and then, just for the thrill of it. If God intends to shock us, He intends to shock us out of our dullness and out of our insensibilities so that we will be reminded again of the importance of living godly lives in an ungodly generation. And that's why we have Genesis 19 here. If you walk out, in other words, this is what I'm trying to impress upon you at the outset. If you walk out from this sermon this morning thinking only, man, that was crazy. Or, man, that was a story that I had never heard before. That, that must have been brutal. Or anything. And there is no introspection. There is no turning and saying, in light of how God has revealed himself, what does that press upon me? You're missing the reason that Genesis 19 is here. Genesis 19 gives us a picture of God, who he is in his nature, That is phenomenal. It is both sobering and comforting. Let's start with the sobering part. God is just and compassionate, so we're going to start with the justice part. God is just. It's important to to recognize that what we have here in Genesis 19 is not just a an exercise in history where events are being recorded. In other words, we're not just being told that judgment happened, but we're being told that the judgment that happened was deserved. This is what makes God just. This is how He reveals His righteousness and His justice, that He does what is right and that he judges mankind according to their works. Genesis 19 could have been much shorter. It could have been one morning Abraham woke up and he looked down at Sodom and the cities of the valley and he saw smoke rising like a furnace and he said, well, God got rid of them. But there's a lot of detail and a lot of labor that goes into the telling of this story to draw out the idea that God does not judge and execute justice on a whim. Judgment from an infinite eternal God is a terrifying concept. But God does not judge without reason. Notice here in the passage, let me just draw your attention to three. We we could name more than three. But three ways that Genesis 19 not only tells us that judgment happened, but that judgment happened and it was deserved. All right, first off, we could start at verses 4 and 5. Two visitors come to the city. Lot invites them to be guests in his home. And look at the way verse 4 reads. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they demand that Lot hand over these two guests so that they can abuse them sexually. 
Now, you can recoil in horror at the account that's being given here, or you can also take into consideration that, what, that the reason that we are given these events is because we are being shown that the sin and depravity in Sodom is dark, it is deep, and it is extensive. The day has not even ended, and the men of the city, not select men of the city, all the men of the city, young and old, from every quarter, gather in mass. How many people that is? Who knows, right? But all the men of the city gather together before the day is over to indulge in heinous sin and depravity. They cannot wait to engage in this plan. And this apparently is just what life is like if you're a citizen of Sodom. Everybody's in on this. That is a corrupt city. That is the kind of city where the citizens are itching to sin, itching to act and react to whatever base instinct or impulse happens to course through their veins or pass across their heart at any given notice at any moment. No restraint. Whatever they want to do, they will do, and they'll do it now. Second, we get another indication that this is a wicked city deserving judgment, not just simply because we're told or we're given a description of what their plans are and what their intentions are, which reveals the corruption of their hearts, but because Lot, in his appeal to the men, actually calls what they are doing wicked. So verse 7 Lot says, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. And then as if to portray to us, and, and we'll get to Lot in a minute, but as if to portray to us just how unbelievably sick this society is, notice that when Lot comes out, to intervene on behalf of his guests, to appeal to the men of the city not to do this act of wickedness. How does he appeal to them? On the basis of righteousness? No. Lot says, instead of doing this great, heinous, evil wickedness, what if you just contented yourself with a lesser form of wicked and evilness? Not exactly what you wanted initially, but will this do for you? There's no appealing to these people on the basis of any kind of morality or righteousness. Lot is so desperate to avoid this offense that the only alternative that he can think of is to give them a lesser offense. And then number three, in case we're not thoroughly convinced of the fact that this is a city that deserves God's judgment, we finally get the word of the messengers themselves in verse 13. They say, we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. God had told Abraham in chapter 18 that he was going to go down and look and investigate the goings-on in Sodom because the outcry of their wickedness was great, because of the outcry of their sin. And when I look and examine, I will know what is the true condition and nature of this place. Here that has happened. There has been 
a full examination of the city. And in examining the city, it has become crystal clear that this city is, in fact, evil and wicked, and it does stand under the right justice of God. This judgment is shocking. Cities in totality are destroyed along with the earth that it's built on. It is shocking. It is sobering. But it is just. So let me warn you against the temptation of being a rubbernecking reader in Genesis 19. You know what rubbernecking is, right? Rubbernecking is when you're driving down the road and there's an accident. Right? You want to look and you want to see the damage. You want to see the carnage. You want to see what all the fuss is about. And then what happens the minute you get past the carnage? You're on your way. Don't rubberneck in Genesis 19. Don't come to this passage and read it and say, whoa, that was bad. Whoa, did you see that? Did you see what I saw here? And then once you leave Genesis 19, go about your life as if it has no bearing on you. It does. It will not do us any good to act and talk and think as if we are just, we are above this now. We're more sophisticated these days. This is, after all, the Old Testament that we're reading. There's a lot of smiting that goes on in the Old Testament. We're not Old Testament people. We're New Testament people. We're people about grace and mercy and Jesus, gentle and lowly, all true. Well, that last part is true. Grace and mercy, Jesus is gentle and lowly. But listen to me, people. The God that we worship, the God that has claimed us as his own, and the God that we worship is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not just, righteous, holy in the Old Testament, and gracious, merciful, and compassionate in the New Testament. God is just as compassionate and merciful in his being in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And God is exactly as just and righteous in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. The person who probably built on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah more than anyone was Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold your place here in Genesis 19. We're going to go to two passages in the Gospels. Let's start at Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, skip down to verse 28. This is Jesus talking about his return and the judgment that will occur when he makes all things right. And Jesus himself says this in Luke 17, starting at verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking. They were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. 
Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, if you think that Genesis 19 was a one-off, a one-and-done, that God has not given us Genesis 19 in order to instruct us and make us wise according to salvation, to spur us on to live lives of holiness and righteousness in conformity with His will and His ways, if you do not recognize the connection and the reason that that passage is there, you are missing the intent of Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is not given to us so that we can gawk over a disaster. Genesis 19 is given to us so that we would grow in our righteousness and in our Christ-likeness. You think when the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities woke up on that day that they thought, this is it? You notice how in, in Genesis 19, one of the interesting things is that the worst side of Sodom is put before us. So that there's no way that we can leave that passage with any other conclusion but that God's judgment was just, right? But did you hear the way that Jesus described the goings-on in Sodom up to the very moment of their destruction? Did you hear how he described that? How did he describe it? Routine, normal. People woke up and they got ready for school. People woke up, they got ready for work. They went to the office, they went to the field. They made phone calls, they sent emails, they had lunch appointments, they had dinner dates, they had little league games. They did all of these things that were normal and they were snuffed out in the blink of an eye. Be careful what you are holding on to. Every day we are tempted to grasp and hold and cling to the things of this life and this world, and it is not going to last. This is not lasting. This is not permanent. This, this room, this place, these pews, what you see when you set foot outside of these doors, all of these things are going to be consumed one day and remade. Everything is going to be leveled. Everything is going to be made new. Be careful what you're holding on to. Or you may get to the end of your life and find that the things that you have tried to amass and collect and hang on to has disappeared in an instant. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Why? Lot's wife made it out of the city, and yet she still encountered some form of judgment because she turned to look back. Almost like the things that we look at, the things that we turn to see, that we want to behold, the things that we look at reveal our loyalties. Why did Lot's wife turn and look back at the city? Because that's where her heart was. What do you spend your time looking at? What do you gaze at in your mind's eye? When you daydream, when you imagine, what does that look like? What do those things, what do those looks and those longings reveal about the loyalties of your heart? Remember Lot's wife. These things are gone in an instant. Look at what Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew, chapter 11. Verse 
Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Let me point out two things in this statement that Jesus makes. Number one, Jesus seems to imply in this statement by saying it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for you in the day of judgment. That when judgment comes, judgment will be measured out according to the amount of light and knowledge that was made available to you. Jesus says... If Sodom had me walking in the city performing miracles, I would have gotten a better response out of Sodom than I have received from Capernaum. At least Sodom can, can claim ignorance. They didn't have miracles performed in their midst. Therefore, because they didn't have that, they're still guilty. I'll still judge them, but Capernaum, you will be judged more harshly because of what you did have and what you did know and what you rejected. You think the judgment of God in Genesis 19 is heavier or is lighter than the judgment that is to come? Genesis 19 is light compared to the judgment that is to come. Recognize that with great blessing comes great accountability. We have an embarrassment of riches in the English-speaking world when it comes to the availability of printed Bibles, of commentaries, of dictionaries, of websites, of podcasts, of blogs. And yet, is it possible that, the, that at the end of the day that Jesus might say to some, if Sodom had half of what you had, they would have repented on the spot. You had all of that, and you continue to persist in your sin and rebellion. That is a terrifying thought. Not only does God judge according to degrees, based on the knowledge that is available. But notice in that passage that Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for you in that day. Meaning that the judgment that Sodom received in Genesis 19 is not even the last and final judgment. The citizens of Sodom are still going to be judged in a more significant way. Does that change the way that you think about this life? It ought to. There are worse things in this life than physical suffering. Physical suffering is bad. Eternal suffering is worse. There are worse things in this life than being emotionally broken. That's bad. It is another thing far worse to be broken under the judgment of a holy, infinite God. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. In the previous chapter, he had referred to Sodom and Gomorrah that God had set up in reducing them to ashes, Peter says. God had made them an example to anyone who would live ungodly in the years to come. And towards the end of his letter then, he comes back to this idea of judgment. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10... 
Peter says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Sounds similar to what happened to Sodom in Genesis 19. Verse 11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is that what you're looking for? Or are you so enamored with this life that you can't possibly think to take your gaze off of the moment, off of these temporal things, and set it on the things that are above for the city that is to come where righteousness dwells? If all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, as they were in Sodom in Genesis 19, what sort of people ought we to be? We ought not be like the rest of the world. We ought not to have the same hopes and dreams that the rest of the world has. We ought not to treasure the same things that the world treasures. Because it's going to go. It's not going to last. God is just. His judgment is deserved. When it comes on this world, on this age, ultimately, finally, for the last time, it will be a judgment that everyone will acknowledge is right. Because we know this, what sort of people ought we to be? Which brings us to Lot. What sort of people ought we to be who are living in a city destined to be destroyed? Any of you read Pilgrim's Progress? Don't raise your hand because if you haven't read it, I'm not sure we can be friends. Pilgrim's Progress starts off with a man who is reading the scriptures, and he comes to realize that he's living in the city of destruction. That's how the story starts. So if you're living in the city of destruction, you know the city is going to be destroyed. How are you going to live? Okay, Lot may not have known all that we know. But understand, there's a little bit of awkward, little bit, there's a lot of awkwardness here. Because in Genesis 18, you remember the, the appeal that Abraham was making to God? God, you're not one who would sweep away the righteous with the wicked, are you? No, 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 no. Surely you won't do that. Look down in chapter 19 at verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Do you see swept away? That's what Abraham said in chapter 18. You won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, will you? And then in chapter 19, the angels are saying, get out of here or you will be swept away. So, chapter 18, chapter 19, if God does not sweep away the righteous with the wicked, and if Lot is not going to be swept away, who is Lot then? Is he the righteous or the wicked? 
It pains you to say it. He's the righteous. Lot is the righteous one that will not be swept away with the wicked. How righteous does Lot look in this chapter? When Lot parted with Abraham, what was that, back in 13? Chapter 13, I think. We're told that Lot parts from Abraham. He goes down towards the valley where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are, and he pitched his tent in that area. He's living in a tent outside of the city. Where is Lot when we find him in chapter 19? He's in the city. Let me, two things, let me point out. He is seated in the gate of the city. And then, of course, we find out very quickly, he has a home in the city. He's seated in the gate of the city. This is implied, this is not explicit, but there is good reason to believe that for Lot to be seated in the gate of the city was an indication that Lot was not just a simple citizen of the city, but that he was a prominent member of the city. Because in ancient Near Eastern cultures, if you lived in a town or a city, the elders or the judges of the city would go and would sit at the city gate to hear cases or to do business dealings with everyone who came and went in the city. That's where you went to find the people who had weight and authority. So these two men come into Sodom, and who should they find seated at the gate of the city where the elders, where the weighty men sit, but Lot himself? It seems like Lot has made himself a pretty good place in Sodom. So Lot has gone from living in a tent outside of Sodom to buying a house and living inside of the city limits, and he's climbed his way up the social network. He's a member in good standing, at least for now, with the citizens of Sodom. That doesn't sound like a righteous man, does it? Comfortable in Sodom? How about when Lot goes out and tries to prevent the men of the city from violating the visitors that, under, that are under his protection in his home? How about instead of taking these two men, you take my daughters? Does that sound like a proposal from a righteous man? Or how about when Lot goes to his sons-in-law to say... This city is about to be destroyed. Run, get out of here. And how do they respond? They don't even take Lot seriously. They think he's joking. What does that say about Lot? And then best of all, the day comes, the morning is coming, destruction is Minutes is hours away, and the angels come and say, Lot, get up. Get your wife, get your daughters, get out of here. And what does Lot do? He hesitates. He, some of the older English versions said, he lingered. But in the New Testament... We're told that Lot is righteous and that his righteous soul was tormented every day by the things that he heard and witnessed in Sodom. I'm going to have to take that one on faith. Do you see how conflicted and compromise Lot is as the righteous, the only righteous person in Sodom, that on the one hand we can be told with authority by the New Testament that he was tormented by the things that he was exposed to, and yet in the way that he lived, in his proximity, in his comfort, 
it seems like he's been able to straddle that fence pretty well. What about you? Do you linger in places with people, with things that are destined to be destroyed because why? Because you can't just you can't bear to give it up. Because even though you know it is going to be destroyed one day, you still find it valuable. You still want to keep it. You still want to hold on to it. Do you linger over sin? I do. And yet, Lot is saved not because of how righteous he is, but because of how compassionate God is. Verse 16, Lot hesitated, so the men seized his hand. And the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was on him. What kind of a God is so compassionate that he will save an unwilling person. What kind of God is so compassionate that he will sanctify unwilling sinners? In C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, towards the end of the book, he writes about this gradual, unrelenting pursuit that God had chased him with to bring him from atheism ultimately to faith in Christ. Listen, this, yeah, I'll get through it. <laughs> this is probably my, one of my favorite, my all-time favorite quotes from Lewis because of how it captures how it captures the grace and mercy of God. Lewis says this. He says, "You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet." That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own two feet. But who can duly adore that love who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. 
the words, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Lot lingered, but he was seized by the hand and taken out of the way of destruction because the compassion of the Lord was upon him. Jonathan Merritt would linger, would hesitate, would stay and dwell and gaze. But the Lord, being rich in kindness, seized him and took him out of the way of destruction. And every single person seated in this room who has come to know Christ can say that same thing for themselves. That none of us were saved from the judgment that was deserved because of our righteousness, but because of the richness of the kindness, compassion, and mercy of God. Having said that, go towards the end of the chapter, verse, or the end of our passage. We'll, we'll wrap it up here. Verse 29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. I, I wish we had more time to develop this, but we don't. Let me just say it this way. God was kind and compassionate to save and deliver Lot, even though Lot was hesitating, even though Lot did not look like a paragon of virtue and righteousness. The compassion of God won out. But the narrator, the text, brings us, brings us back to Abraham to say, don't forget that one of the factors in Lot's salvation was the promise that God had made to Abraham who interceded for Lot. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he, Christ, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reason that we can be confident in the compassion of God ruling and reigning over us rather than the judgment of God is because the Father has made a promise to his Son that if he would give himself up for undeserving sinners, that the people that he purchases for himself by his own death will never be lost. The compassion of God rests upon you and rests upon me, not because I deserve it, but because Christ has asked for the Father to give it to me. And the Father, having promised to do that as a grant to His Son, would no sooner remove His compassion from me and you than He would lie to His Son. We are deserving of God's judgment, but we get His compassion because Christ intercedes for us daily. It doesn't matter if we hear Christ interceding for us or not. Lot didn't hear Abraham intercede for him. It doesn't matter if I hear it or not. He intercedes still. Behold the justice and the compassion of our God. <clears throat> 
if you are here and you do not know what it means to know the compassion and the kindness of God given to you undeserved, you can find me up front. If you do know the compassion of God saving you, delivering you from a judgment that you deserve, do keep in mind that we have passages like Genesis 19 to remind us that because we have been saved from those things that incur the wrath of God, we ought not to live in them any longer. Because we have been called to holiness, we ought to live holy lives. Let's pray. Father, how could we ever thank you enough for what it is that you have done for us? Giving up your own son, who is made to be a curse in our place, who suffered humiliation and even death, knowing the displeasure, the wrath of a holy judge on sin and sickness and depravity. All of that poured out on your son so that we could know your favor and your kindness. Father, we ask that as we move out from this place this morning, that you would keep us mindful of the fact that this entire world stands under the right judgment that you have promised to deliver, that we once stood under that judgment, but because of your mercy extended to us through the death and resurrection of Christ, shared with others who can still know the compassion of God rather than the justice of God. We pray these things as a way to honor you through Christ, by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond to that message this morning as we close with song. Surely goodness, surely mercy, right beside me all my days, and I will dwell in your house forever, and bless your holy name, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow shadow of death, you are on my side, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no shadow of death, you are on my side. Surely goodness, surely mercy, right beside me. dismissed.